there's science that shows that when the heart and the mind are working optimally, what's called coherence, it's formed because people are having a constant experience of positive emotions. So when people are constantly feeling supported, valued, safe, happy, appreciated, people are showing them interest, they're giving opportunities to learn, all of these create these feelings, which is like, this is a pretty great place to work, right? So when that happens, this coherence between the heart and the mind literally puts people into their optimal level of performance. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. My first book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now out in the world. Thank you so much for your support of the book. With your help, we are a number one Amazon bestseller in the business ethics category and a number one new release for time management in business and business etiquette. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories for my coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values letting them shift out of alignment. Those simple misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order Values First now at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I wanna make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. This week's guest is Mark C. Crowley. Mark is a recognized visionary in workplace management, engagement, and culture. He is the author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century, and the host of the top-ranked Lead from the Heart podcast. In our discussion, we talked about feedback that Mark received from business leaders originally rejecting this type of leadership because they didn't see the connection to business growth. We also talked about the influence of the pandemic and the expectations of millennials and Gen Z and that how that created a need for this type of new management. I loved the science that is tied to this way of leading. Mark mentions the science-backed behaviors that managers can do to create more emotional currency for employees, and how that's more effective than traditional recognition tactics like pay or bonuses. He also talked about actionable ways to ensure that you as a leader are ready to lead from the heart by starting with introspection. 
let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience for those who are not familiar with your story. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I would love to. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the big picture, Laura, is that I spent 25 years in financial services in the dog-eat-dog world, and I had a lot of success there. I had two national-level positions at one of the largest financial institutions in the country, and actually, right before I wrote my book the first time, I was named Leader of the Year. But what's interesting is that I managed people very untraditionally and effectively proved that the way that people really want to be managed is aligned to what human nature is and to what what leads to human thriving. And so I just sort of perfected this. It became evident that I was having an effect on people. I started to say, okay, well, how can I refine this and make it better? And so I experimented with a lot of different things on my people, but all with good intention and really landed on certain practices that I believe would, if a manager adopted these and aggregated them, meaning you just can't do one, although you could, you'd be a better manager just by doing one, but if you did all of them, you'd have this really profound effect on people. And so what ended up happening was that a friend of mine said to me, he goes, you're going to have to explain why this works. So I know that it sounds like, well, yes, of course, right? You're writing a book, you want to explain it, but it never crossed my mind. So I was like, oh my goodness, I hadn't given that any thought. I just thought people would take me at my word. So his advice was that I do some research. And one thing I won't go into with any depth, but what he said to me was, people are going to think you needed a childhood in order to lead this way. And that's why you need the research. So I had a really corrupt upbringing that influenced me to manage people in ways that I think I always wanted to be led, you know, that I wanted to be parented. Much more orientation towards caring about them, making them feel safe, encouraging them, which literally means to give heart, by the way, to develop them, coach them, all of those kinds of things. And so what he was saying was, you have to explain what the effect is and why did that work? So I spent about a year and a half looking for as much evidence as I could possibly find. And I found some pretty stunning information about job satisfaction and engagement that we can talk about. But the the real big piece that I discovered was that I believe that I was affecting the hearts and people, but I found science that validated that that's exactly what we need to be doing. So everything we've always believed about management, instead of paying people as little as possible and squeezing as much out of them as possible and being indifferent to them, and if they don't do a good job, we just basically threaten them and tell them we're gonna replace you. All of those things put people in a suboptimal level of performance. And when you care about people, you're creating a, environment inside their bodies that makes them optimally perform just naturally so the heart actually plays a big role in this and so all of a sudden or we're hearing people say oh you need to lead more with your heart and heart-led leaders i said it 11 years ago when i wrote the book because of the science not because of the metaphor so just to pin this down i wrote the book in 2011 and education embraced it nine universities have taught it Business thought I was out of my mind for the most part. So there were the early adopters, which kept me going, but largely what I had to do 
was to basically drip on people. So I think people had the interpretation, anybody that's going to write a book called Leave from the Heart had to be a religious, not a spiritualist, or somebody who doesn't get business, right? You just don't do that. And so for all the people that just shut it down instinctively because they heard the word heart and they were like, well, forget that guy. <laughs> I started writing articles for Fast Company magazine so that I could drip. People would read it and go, oh, like, that guy's not crazy after all. Maybe not persuade them on the first article, but after 30 of them, I started to win over an audience of people that were saying, wait a minute, what he's talking about like makes all the sense of it. And then I created my podcast and so that people could actually hear that I wasn't crazy. And so that now is an audience in 156 countries. And people are now seeing that what I've been talking about for 12 years now is fundamentally truth. I would love to take the credit and say, you know, it was all my hard work with my articles and my podcast that did it. But what really did it was the pandemic, a two-year global pandemic that, you know, we basically redeployed people from their offices to their homes and managers had to pivot. And some understood that something had changed and a lot of them didn't. A lot of them said, well, they're just working from home. There's no difference. The people who got it understood that, no, that's not what happened. They're now working with their children at home. They're now working with their spouse at home. There's a dynamic that completely disrupts life. And so calling your employee at eight o'clock in the morning and saying, hey, Laura, where are you on this report? Or where are you on this goal? And you have kids that are trying to sign on for online you know, school or a spouse that's trying to get onto their own Zoom call. You've got all these things going on. The manager that says, is this a good time for us to have a conversation? Like, can we, can you do this right now? Because if not, we can do it later. Now, all of a sudden people are like, that's what I need. I need a caring boss. I need someone who thinks about me in the big picture, cares about me in the big picture and does it consistently. So there's all this argument about whether or not the Great Recession is real or not. I absolutely believe it's real. And I absolutely believe that tens of millions of people don't quit jobs unless they're unhappy. And so the idea here is that people had this epiphany during this great recession where they just thought, I can't keep going. I, like something's gotta be better than what I have. And some of that's pay related, but I think most of it is related to how they feel every day in their jobs. And so, you know, since this is an audience that's principally focused on the C-suite and CEO activities, uh, CEOs, they've got to embrace a whole nother way of seeing leadership and be willing to say, as Marshall Goldsmith, my coach says, what got you here won't keep you there effectively. You know, you, you, you can say, well, I was successful managing the old way. Well, you're not going to continue to be successful unless you embrace a much more thoughtful, caring, human, and I don't even like the word human, I, I call it humane, because humans do a lot of bad things in management. Humane is the, is the compassion, kindness, just an orientation about really caring about your people. So that's my story. Thank you so much. There's so much I want to dig into. So when you first um, launched your book over 10 years ago, you said that some some people embraced it and others didn't. What did it look like? And how did you get that feedback from the people that were not embracing it? And kind of did they give you negative reviews? Did they just say, hey, this isn't going to work here in business? You don't know what you're talking about. But how did you how did you get that feedback? And and did you trust it? Did you, How did that feel at the time? It's a fantastic question. Have, have you ever like been intrigued by something 
but kind of went, yeah, I'm not so sure, but like, I'll, I'll make it up. Okay. You're like everybody's getting tattoos and you go, Hmm, tattoo. I wonder if I could get a tattoo. What would that look like on me? And then you kind of go, well, that would be kind of cool. I mean, people have them. And then you go, nah. And you know, like, it's just not for me. Right. And so two stories that I'll tell you, one is the idea that by caring about people, we create a biology inside of people that that naturally inspires them and makes them instinctively want to support their manager is something we all want to believe. So when the book came out, I had a speaking agent reach out to me immediately and said, I want to represent you. And I hope he's not listening because in the 10 years, he's basically gotten me very few. I, I spoke at Yahoo. There's been some cool ones that he's gotten, but for the most part, all the speaking engagements that I've gotten have come from my own work. And why? Because what happens is, or what happened, is that people heard the title, they thought of the tattoo, and went, hmm, this is kind of cool. Show me more about this tattoo. And then at the last minute, they go, we've narrowed it down to two people, Mr. Tattoo or the heart guy or this person. And what my agent said to me, five years ago was I've never had anybody generate so much interest only to lose it at the last minute. Hmm. So that's a sign that meeting planners or whomever who was responsible for the meeting got scared and thought I was going to come in and sing Kumbaya on stage. So that was one. But, you know, I, I went and spoke at Yahoo and they completely went crazy over it and they're not around anymore. But, you know, but in terms of management understanding in, a te in the technology world that this had to be, they completely embraced it. However, I was invited to speak at Amazon. And at the last minute, I got a phone call and they said, oh, you know, we decided to shrink the meeting and it's not going to have any outside speakers. So I'm sorry, you can't come. And I knew it sounded a little suspicious, but I had nothing to go on. Well, about a year ago, year and a half ago, the person that wanted to hire me at Amazon moved to Microsoft and asked me to speak for Microsoft. And he had another person on that he wanted to persuade that I was the right person to come speak for Microsoft. And the other person on the line said, have you had any like resistance to this idea? Like, have, you know, have people thought that you were crazy? And I started to answer. And the guy who tried to hire me at Amazon said, oh, I have a story for you. Because I tried to hire him at Amazon, and my boss came up to me. Jeff Bezos was going to be in the room. This was all the senior leaders from the entire company coming in for a global meeting, and I was going to be one of their speakers. And the guy goes, tell me about your speaker. He goes, oh, I wrote this great book called Leave from the Heart. And the guy goes, instantly, just like he told me what he said, and I'll just use it in different language. But it was like, screw that, cancel that guy. We need somebody who can buy performance. And effectively told me that without even looking at the book, without even asking him what it was about or asking about my credibility as a leader and that does this guy even understand our business and all of it? Yes is yes and yes, but they never asked. So what it just told me was, is that it just sounds soft to people, but the reason that it's in there. So I was told by somebody, don't do this. Like I paid her a lot of money and she's like, no way do you ever use this language? Like, don't stop. But the reason it's in there is because of what we talked about a moment ago, Laurel, which is that there's science that shows that the heart and the mind work together and influence our behavior, right? And that's not common knowledge. And it's certainly not common understanding in business. 
So when you think about this, we have a, a unified intelligence and all we do in business is say, we need the smartest guy to be the manager. And we don't need you to be caring about people because that's just gonna get you in trouble. We're excluding a fundamental part of our intelligence, of our understanding. And if you're only managing with the mind, you're not connecting with people on what I believe is the more important part when it comes to building relationships. So as we said, though, I think what COVID did is that when people started leaving in droves and companies started realizing why people were going, all the evidence shows that pay is important. But what really forced most of these people out the door was the guy I'm working for or the person I'm working for. I just can't stand working for this person because they don't value me. They don't care about me. And so it's huge validation for two years running. And so I think, as you said, right before we got started, where we were 11 years ago was complete resistance. Where we are today is 90% acceptance. And I'm hoping to get to the other 10% here. Yeah, I love that story from Amazon because, oh my goodness, can't drive performance with right? from the heart. No Those way. Can't be synonymous. Right? No way. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that though it's kind of meeting us at the time, right? And it's also it says a lot about culture of companies too, right? Knowing a little bit about the the culture of Amazon versus Microsoft and and those kinds of things. It's not shocking, but at the same time, um it's really interesting that that trend happened in so many places, but to your point now we're ready to listen. And I think we have to listen because of, you know, the great resignation and all of the, the feedback that employees are now telling us. And they're telling us, like you said, in engagement scores and where it matters. I feel like, especially now that we're working more remotely, even though some companies are trying to kind of swing the pendulum back, your company mostly sometimes is your manager, right? That's the face of the company. That's the person you spend the most time with. And that relationship matters so much. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, culture is not an organizational thing. Engagement is not a cultural thing. You know, just because a culture a company has some decent perks in the old days, you know, because they gave people free food. Free food isn't anything that's going to keep people from leaving a job, right? And it really boils down to the effectiveness of the manager. So what happens is, again, with your CEO audience, I call this out. You have a manager on paper who's doing great work because in a sales environment, they're driving numbers or whatever. They're hitting their goals. So somebody complains and says, you know, this person is toxic and I can't work for them. And so you start to see turnover amongst that team. But you keep looking at the numbers and the numbers are still going up. The numbers are still getting better. And so universally, what happens is, is companies go, I can't let that guy go. And I say guy universally, right? I can't let that manager go because they're, they're doing what I need them to do. And what I'm here to say is, if you care about your people, and set high expectations, you will outperform the guy that does it with fear and intimidation and creates massive turnover. Very few CEOs are willing to take that risk. Very few senior high level managers are willing to take that risk. They hear the stories about this person being a plague on the organization, 
but they keep looking at the numbers and they're like, I'm not going to take that risk because some Mr. Softy is going to come in and, you know, everybody's going to love them and they're not going to get results. And it's just not the way it works. People will outperform anything you can expect them to do when you've supported their needs the way that I believe you should and, and described in my book. Can you talk a little bit more about the idea of rewarding on emotional currency versus some of the more traditional things that we're used to seeing, like pay as the lever that we usually use? Can we talk a little bit about that? So it starts with the premise that Rene Descartes hundreds of years ago said, I think, therefore I am. It asserts that we are who we are because we think. And a fundamental premise of the book is that he was wrong. He's, he's patently wrong. We are not necessarily exclusively thinking beings. We are thinking and feeling beings. But more importantly, what, and, and, and it was really interesting to me is that I had research on this because I went looking for it because I knew it to be true. I knew that people were feeling something for me. And so I went to look to see if there was science that could confirm that. And I found it. And that's what went into the first book. But all of a sudden, like in the last two or three years, there's been this preponderance of data, uh, preponderance of research coming from really like top organizations in America specifically, top, top researchers from Yale and Yale again and Wharton and uh, University of California, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, there are people that are doing research around this. And what they've proved is that up to 95% of human behavior is driven by feelings. The feeling happens first. And then interestingly, Dr. James Doty, who's one of the world's famous brain surgeon, he happens to be a neurosurgery professor at Stanford Medical School. And he believes the heart matters more in leadership than the mind, which is mind blowing, no pun intended. But what he says is that is there's a unified intelligence there, but it starts in the heart. It starts in the feeling. So if we understand that feelings and emotions drive human behavior, what we care about, what we commit ourselves to, what we're willing to devote ourselves to, when you apply that to engagement, engagement is a decision of the heart. It's not a decision of the mind. So when we go up to people, when you go, hey, what do you think of this place? What you should be asking is, well, how do you feel about this place? Because it's the feelings that create the thought. So based on that, Barbara Fredrickson, who's the professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill has discovered, and there are others, have shown that human thriving occurs when we experience a ratio of positive emotions of a minimum of four to one. There's interestingly a, a gentleman named John Gottman at the University of Washington who's proved the same thing when it comes to marriages, mm -hmm. that in healthy marriages that endure, it's at least five to one. So the implication is the higher the ratio, the better off people are going to be, but it needs to be four to one. So if that's the case, and by the way, there's science that shows that when the heart and the mind are working optimally, what's called coherence. It's formed because people are having a constant experience of positive emotions. So when people are constantly feeling supported, valued, safe, happy, appreciated, people are showing them interest, they're giving opportunities to learn, all of these create these feelings, which is like, this is a pretty great place to work.
right? So when that happens, this coherence between the heart and the mind literally puts people into their optimal level of performance. So with that as a basis, I coined this expression emotional currency because as you smartly say, you know, the first thing is you go in more and you say, hey boss, uh, I just got an offer from XYZ company and I've accepted the job. No, 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 don't you go. All I want to talk about is the assumption that it's paid. You know, I'll give you 15% right more to stay. It's just more about salary. And what I'm saying is, it's too late, by the way. Almost everybody who accepts that offer ends up leaving within 90 days anyway. But yeah. if you understand that feelings and emotions drive behavior and positive emotions are what human beings need in order to thrive, like we're hardwired to do that, then we need to create the experiences that prompt people to feel the positive emotions. And that's the emotional currency. So the more we appreciate, the more we give people our time and attention, the more we feel, make people feel psychologically and in my language, emotionally safe, not just psychologically, because that's here, it's up in the mind. Emotion, how do you make somebody feel safe? So like, you know, when I was managing people at every level, it didn't really matter. If they did something that I was like pleased with, I would just say, you know, I'm the luckiest guy to have hired you. Like, I'm so glad that you are on my team and you make such a massive contribution. And a lot of managers will think, well, I'm not going to say that because the minute you say that, they're going to take advantage of you. They're going to come back the next day and you said, I'm said, I'm doing a good job. Give me another 10% or only. And that's not the way it works. People are so grateful when you give them what they need because it's so rare that people manage like this. So I'm trying to get everybody to manage like this because this is what we know scientifically, but also through my own direct experience of managing people at all levels for 25 years, proved to me that people will scale mountains for you if you manage this way. The world is getting more and more complex. Anabit chaotic, pandemic, social unrest, recession, hybrid workforce, you name it, it is here. And it's hard to navigate home and work for yourself and for your team. And what about time for you? It seems non-existent. Our recent podcast listener and reader told me the following, this has been a light bulb moment, knowing my values and then identifying boundaries to protect my values and building systems to support those boundaries. It's been incredible. When I've broken one of those boundaries, remembering my values has kept me focused. In Values First, this book can give you the tools to build those boundaries, but more importantly, how to keep them with a proven framework to identify what matters most to you and the motivation to build a sustainable plan. Values First, how knowing your core beliefs can get you the life and career you want is now available wherever books are sold. Go to thecatchgroup.com slash values first to learn more and stay connected. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. It's so true. This idea, the, the feedback that we get is usually feedback for opportunity, right? It's very uncommon to hear, like when was the last time you heard or as a manager, you gave positive feedback just because or in the moment and the idea that it needs to be four to one, like think of the huge gap that so many managers have. And to your point, it's probably those times in the moment that it makes just so much of the difference for that person 
to give them that emotional currency that you said. I feel like it is a habit. How do you do it? Well, I mean, I, it starts with intention, right? So if you understand, like if if you told me you were a diabetic, right? If you just told me, I'm just, this is just popping into my head. So if you just told me, hey, you know, we're just meeting and I'm a diabetic and we go out for, I have you over to my house. Well, like I'm going to say to you, can you eat this? Is this okay? What we're having? Because I'm going to be making these things for dinner when you come over more. And I just want to make sure that you can eat them. Like they'll make you happy. And so you say, you know, we were going to start off with some Coca-Cola. Well, that's kind of probably not a good idea. So, okay, wipe that off. But you're like, hey, he's asking me before I come to tell me what would not work so that he doesn't serve it to me. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel like, wow, like who would do that? And already there's a like, that's, I got to imagine that that would create something really powerful inside of you, right? You're just yeah. so rare that somebody would do that. Yeah, somebody's thinking of me. Yeah. And so it starts there. It just starts there. But, it, you know, the other thing is, is that as you started to go down the road of, you know, what keeps us from recognizing people and telling people, I think we have, I don't know who said this, but I remember reading it one time and just thinking, yes, this is it. Every time we go and say something kind to somebody or something generous, something complimentary, something appreciative, somehow we have it in our mind that it's like equivalent to reaching into our wallet. Like it's going to cost me something. And so, you know, and I've noticed this with the book, you know, that there's just some people that are just like, I'm so happy for you. I'm so thrilled for you. And I just want the best for you. And then there are other people that it's, it's too hard to do that. You know, it's too hard because they feel that somehow level it takes something from them. If I have to admit you're doing well, then somehow I lose. Mm. And we got to get over that because yeah. there's no there's no loss there. There's there's simply no loss. In fact, you know, I think that the more the more you give to people, the more you get back. It's simple as that, right? And so instead of thinking when I give to people and I'm supportive and complimentary and thinking of them and finding ways to support them, that that's going to somehow harm me. Look at it from what the truth is. So the more you give voice to people, the more you're inclusive, all of these create that emotional currency, but it has to start here. So one of the things we were talking about before we started was, you know, I really believe in, I have an article coming out in Fast Company in, uh, on Labor Day. And it's really all about getting to know you, know yourself, know thyself. Because the first hurdle is really asking yourself, do I even want to do this? Do I love people enough to do this, to be this genuine with them, to be this caring, this supportive? Because it's interesting because Gallup has pretty much discovered, I call it a caring gene. What Gallup has discovered that an orientation to be other focused, like a coach would be other focused, right? Mm -hmm. And think about any coach you ever had in your life. They weren't thinking about themselves and go, hey, when I was eight, you know, I could shoot from 90 feet away. It wasn't about them. It was about helping you get better, right? So only about a third of the population, of the world population has an orientation that could ever be a good coach mm -hmm. because right out of the gate, 
two thirds of people are much more focused on themselves, on their own recognition, their own growth, their own development, their own pay, all of that. So if they're managing other people and they have an orientation that's focused on themselves, one of the number one, two complaints that people have about their bosses is that they feel their bosses are competing with them. And the reason they compete with them is because they're either threatened by them or they're so focused on themselves that they can't give enough time to people. So I, I think that's a really big question to ask. And if you don't really love doing it, if you don't like the messiness of people and you don't really want to give to them, then don't. There's plenty of individual roles that you can do where you can make a difference without managing other people. And I believe that if you really don't have it, no pun intended, but if you don't have it in your heart to manage other people, you're going to do a lot of harm too. You know, you, it's just not going to work very well. And you probably hurt people in the process. Yeah, I, that brings me back to a time where I was in a corporate role building capability with um, different people managers. And one of those, you know, you're a first time manager training. And one of the leaders in the room, I think he was an engineer or something. He said, you know, this is really interesting, but I just don't really like people. And it got a laugh from the group. He was kind of serious and it was introspective and he learned a lot and he thought of, it made him really pause and think like, what do I want to do? Do I want to be a, maybe a critical professional? And just because I got a promotion, um, if my heart's not in it to your point, like, am I going to be doing more harm than good in some of these positions? So it's an interesting, it's an interesting question of self-reflection. And if you, if you do answer it, Yes, I am in this, but I'm not one of those, a third of the people that's like dialed in to do this like a coach. It's, it's still a learnable behavior, right? It's a learnable behavior if you want it to be a learnable behavior. I think you can learn, I think you can get better at it. And I like pick up a club and I start hitting it and the ball goes out there. I'm like, oh, that's okay. A year from now, I have different things that I can do. Like, you know, I can hit a driver and I can hit a short iron. I've practiced and developed it. If you have no aptitude for golf, you're really not going to pick it up, right? So so I think it's more binary, you know, to the extent that you just, this is going to sound crazy, but this is absolutely what I believe. Your heart will tell you the answer. So do a Ben Franklin, the pros and cons. What do I like about managing people? I get, I have a VP title or whatever, you know, I'm getting promoted. People think I'm doing a good job because of that, right? Um, there's prestige in the company by being a manager. And I get to go to manager meetings and travel and do fun things that I wouldn't get to do an individual contributor role. So then you start to put the individual contributor stuff on there. I don't have to, I, you know, I can focus on my own stuff. I can learn and cultivate more skills. So you've gone through this whole process of weighing out the pros and the cons. And once you've done that, by the way, Daniel Kahneman, this is where this comes from. He said, I don't know what it is, but there's something to this. Once you've done that analysis, ask your heart, what's the answer? And your heart's going to tell you, I don't really want to manage people. I mean, what's interesting to me is that guy, he was the engineer, knew he didn't like people. And the company put him in there. And the reason they put him in there to do harm was because they had no other way of promoting him. You know, like this is classic. You're, we're going to make you a manager and then you're going to help everybody else become as good of an engineer as you. And what they don't understand is the skill set to be a good engineer is nothing at all like being a good, right? I mean, yeah, we've, we've had some really good like major league baseball players. Name one coach in major league baseball. Name one 
team manager that was an all-star as a baseball player. I, I can't come up with one, not even in football. And the reason is, is because just because you're a star quarterback doesn't mean you're going to be a great leader of people. It's a totally different skill set. So when we hire for managers, we shouldn't be going, well, he's the number one engineer, so he's automatically the manager. We should be saying, who, which one of these people understands engineering well enough that they can be competent, but has the aptitude to help other people do their jobs effectively? It's a very different mindset. It is. And I, and I think it's an important one to think about as, you know, as leaders and organizations, as you are growing and building teams. Another question that I have for you, kind of in terms of the timeliness of this topic right now, we're, I'm not going to say post pandemic, because we are still in a pandemic, but just kind of this new way of working. Um, what have you found with kind of the expectations of of Gen Z in the workforce. Has that influenced some of this? Are they wanting more of this type of leadership? I feel like that's uh, they're almost expecting it. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, here's the truth, because you're going to have people listening to this that are, you know, anything from probably 20 to 70. Who knows? I'm making it up, but a wide range of ages, right? So the answer, the question is, are Gen Z, is Gen Z demanding something that the rest of us don't need or want? And the answer to that is no. We all need it and want it. It's just what's happened is, is that, and and I, I mean into the baby boomer generation. And when I started in my career, you get a paycheck and you have to put up with whatever they're willing to do to you. So then you had Gen X and they sort of had a sense that, you know, what you guys do isn't really good, but it wasn't a large enough uh, group of people to make a difference. And the millennials came in and the millennials were the first ones to start pushing up on the edges. So I used to think that the CEO read my book and saw the science that they'd instantly say, well, geez, I mean, we just, we just have to do it his way. It's so compelling. And what happened instead is a lot of CEOs went, well, I got successful by doing it the opposite. So why do I need to change? And they couldn't see what was coming, right? So rather than the nobility of a CEO seeing and seeing research that shows that we're managing people all wrong, and you can get greater performance by managing in a different way. What's happened is, is that the younger audiences, Gen Z and millennials are forcing it on them. So they're adapting, but with an arm twist, it's being, you know, they're having to say uncle, you know, and so I look at that and I just think it's so stupid. It just doesn't make any sense to me that we would fight change like this, but this is what's natural. Gen Z is coming in after the millennials. And so it's kind of like a brick wall where my generation built it. Gen X started scratching at it. The millennials started taking down huge pieces of it. And Gen Z is just coming in and going, what the hell is this wall? Like, this makes no sense to me. And you need to take it down because I'm not going to stick around here. This is, a, this is a generation that is really looking for a different way. And if you've ever heard that whole expression about if you put a frog in water, cold water, and you turn the flame up, they'll just sit in the pot until they boil. But if you drop a frog into hot water, they'll just jump out, right? I'm not sticking around for this. That's Gen Z. So that's what we're seeing. And, you know, the thing is, is that managers, a lot of them, they just go, well, screw that. You know, I'm, I'm, 
I, they're going to have to adapt to me. And they don't understand that this is not how it works. If you want people to work for you and work hard, you have to you have to support them. Now it has to be a win-win. You can't just roll over and play dead and tell people whatever they want to do. And and they need to be engaged in it. Look, these are our business challenges. These are our goals. This is what you get paid to do. I need people in the office on these days in order to do this work. But how else can we make this work? And a lot of managers are like, I don't want to take the time. I don't really care. You know, and and it backfires on them. People are quitting on them. And it's just, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to grow a new skill, which is slow down, be inclusive, let people influence you, be clear on what your expectations are, hold people accountable and trust them, and you'll do well. I cannot agree more with the idea that um, it's good for everyone. Like Gen Z or millennials might have been the first ones or they might have been the most adamant. So now we're actually listening, but it does good for every single person. It, do, it does good for the leader. It does good for the entire organization and the team. Um, I'm just so happy that we were able to tackle so many topics today. And I want to make sure that we um, are able to connect with you and where to find the book. Can you tell us a little bit more? The name of the book is Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And I'm Mark C. Crowley. And you can find it on Amazon and every bookstore around the world. And you can find me on Twitter. I am Mark C. Crowley. And I am Mark C. Crowley on LinkedIn. And my website, by no surprise, is markccrowley.com. Or if you want to, you can type in leadfromtheheart.com and that will take you to me. And so all roads lead, lead, lead me there. So thank you so much for sharing this space with us today. And I really appreciate all of the thought leadership that you've shared with the audience. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for having me, Laura. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.